This morning's scripture is from Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man, to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. These are the words of God. Good morning. I'm Scott, the pastor at Emmanuel. Very glad to be with you today. And especially if you're new at the church, even if it's just been the last couple of weeks or last couple of months, really glad that you could join us today. This is a time of year that we're often, uh, in a typical year, would be welcoming people with lunches and having picnics in the park. Um, and we can't do that this year, but, but we want to stay connected. And so if you're new, we're really glad you've joined us and would love to encourage you to come in deeper into the life of the church uh, as we do life together as a community. This year, our sermon series is going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we're just going chapter by chapter in the, in the fall and into the beginning of the winter. I want to begin today with a question for you, uh, a question for you to think about, and I'm going to leave you actually 30 seconds of silence just to think about the question, and it's to try to come up with one word that describes how you're feeling in this period. So it's been more than six months since we've been in shelter in place, um, maybe different periods you felt differently, but right now, is there an adjective, uh, is there a one descriptive word? that you think summarizes mostly where you're at. Let's just sit quietly for 20 or 30 seconds and think. Mm-hmm. 
All right. I encourage you to keep thinking, but what would be great, are any of you willing to post your word in the chat? <laughs> Everyone can't, but if we could get 10 or 15, it would be interesting to see what, what is it that, that we're experiencing individually? Uh, what are some of the themes in the community? Anybody feel like chatting a word? And while we're, yeah, weary, discouraged, tired, worried, unsettled, sobered, that's good, uninspired, great and grateful, confused, disenchanted, antsy, content, thankful. Yeah, that's great. Feel free to keep putting them in. Oh, there's uh, one, a family, sad, stressed, hopeful, sobered, strange, expectant, hopeful. Um, what a great collection of words because this taps into the book of Ecclesiastes. And what's interesting, if you think, well, this is just a Christianizing because people are trying to be optimistic and positive because there's some hopeful words in there. There's thankful. The interesting thing is we go through Ecclesiastes is there are arrows. There are pointers of hope. There, there's a reason this book is in the Bible. It's not to discourage us. But it's a, it's a good book for our time because it has disenchanted, antsy, uh, confused, uninspired, unsettled, worried. All of those things are there. When I think of a word to begin our sermon series with, uh, a word that stands out in today's scripture reading, uh, verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Uh, that word made its way in, weary, tired. The other words have echoes of it. Uh, being antsy is part of being weary. Um, uh, strangeness, stressed, sad. These are words that, that describe weariness. We've now been more than six months into this. We're, we're looking at a passage that, that is part of the biblical story. The Bible opens up with, with God creating the heavens and the earth and, and creating these places of the sea and the land and the air, and he fills them with life. So the sea is filled with living creatures and the, and the earth is filled with, uh, with the animals that crawl on the earth and the skies are filled with the birds that fly. And so we have a picture of a fullness of life. And we're going to talk today about how that story changes. But, but now you have in, in Ecclesiastes 1 these creational image, images. But what are things full of? <laughs> is it full of life? Verse 8 said, all things are full of weariness. Uh, there's something exhausting. There's something tired, uh, tiring about life in this world. And for us, that's sharpened in this unique season that we're in. But Ecclesiastes is, is talking about the cycles of life that, that every person, every, every generation will experience this. So we're going to talk about weariness today. What is it that, that leads to weariness? Is it long working hours? Is it hard work? Well, no. People, if somebody's you know, starting up a company, they may work a lot of hours. They may be stressed, but they're excited for what could be. And they work hard and they sleep well at night. It's another thing if you work long hours and at the end of the day, you feel like you could have done better and gotten more done. And so you lay in bed thinking, I'm not good enough. Maybe tomorrow should be better, but now I can't sleep because I'm concerned about these. And because I didn't sleep the next day, you're tired and now you have to do it again. And the day is long and now you're weary. And that cycle is a hard cycle to break. And that's a cycle that 
that we're more likely to be in during this period. All things are full of weariness. So what causes weariness? It's not hard work. It's not long hours. Uh, there are other things that lead to burnout. So today we're going to consider three, three causes of weariness, grasping for life, struggling for productivity, and longing for something new. So I'm just going to walk us through that. So what causes weariness? One thing is grasping for life. We are to be energetic, enthusiastic people who, who hit life trying to make the most of it. But how long could we do that without finding ourselves burning out, tired, weary? Um, one of the theme phrases that comes up again and again in verse 2, we talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, you'll see it again, but verse 2, just the opening idea, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word vanity is the word hevel. It's a Hebrew word. Wow. Could be translated breath. Could be translated futility. Could be translated absurd or meaningless. There are different ways of getting at this. But so the idea of vanity here is not um, egotistical, but vanity is, is fleeting. So, so hevel, like, like the breath that you exhale, you know, you could see the exhale in the winter when it's cold. It's there. It's real. But you can't grasp it. As, as soon as you see it, it's gone. That theme, everything in life seems to be like that. And that becomes wearisome. And so last week, we began this series looking at Genesis 4 <clears throat> because the Bible opens up, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, with two stories, the story of Genesis 1 and the story of Genesis 2 through 4. Now, there's a number of things that happen in Genesis 2 through 4 that you can look at distinctly, but together they tell one story. And the stories are different. Um, in Genesis 1, it opens the Bible that the earth is without form and void. Uh, there's an emptiness. It's, it's inhospitable to life. The word hevel is not there, but there's a sense in which there's, there's that, that, that lacking of life and fullness. There's an emptiness. But it says the spirit of God, the wind of God, uh, the ruach is the Hebrew word, is hovering over creation. And we meet God in his power. God who in his power orders this chaos um, by showing his power through simply speaking reality into being. And because this God is good, which is very clear in Genesis 1, he exercises his power so that the outcome is a wise ordering of things. You go from chaotic, unhospitable, uh, not habitable, to all of a sudden orderly and filled with life. Now, where does that story lead? And this is where some of the, the early chapter markings in Genesis are a bit odd. The story of Genesis 1 does not end at the end of Genesis 1 in the sixth day, but it, begins, it, it ends in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, which is the seventh day. It ends with God resting. It ends with the seventh day that God, who exercises his power wisely and good, he works to, to make things. And at the end of his work, there's rest and there's delight and celebration. And we're told that's the pattern for humanity. If you join with God, you have six days to wisely and with goodness do your work. And then work leads to satisfaction. Now, there's a second story. So, so what are the generations of the heavens and the earth as it plays out, Genesis 2 through 4? 
we come back to creation, but this time the angle is now from the earth and it's much more intimate. It's not about God and his vast power, but it's about God who molds humanity from the dust of the earth. And he breathes the breath of life into Adam. The name means humanity. And we're told there that, the, that this signals relationship, that, that God forms him, breathes into him, and then speaks to him and gives him tasks uh, to, to rule over the earth and to guard and to keep um, and to eat all that's there. And there's this wonderful possibility. But then Genesis 3, the famous story where Adam and Eve encounter the serpent who um, deceives them. And so in Genesis 2, there are two trees. There's the tree of life. But there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they're warned, do not touch. Now, what do Adam and Eve know about evil? So they're warned in the day that you touch it, you'll die. What do they know about death? All they know is God tells them that if you're faithful to me, what they may not understand is eventually, as they go around eating, they'll eat the tree of life. Um, but they're told uh, to, to beware of the one tree. And of course, the, the story of Genesis 3 is they want to take hold of that. And, and so, so right there, there's a picture of humanity who, who has goodness, but wants what they don't yet understand, and, and yet they grasp now the knowledge of good and evil. And Ecclesiastes is, 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 is dealing with reality in that world that now things are not just good, but there's also evil, this corrosive force that attaches to things. And, and when evil is minimal, there's still enough goodness that, that life is is exciting, filled with good things to do. But there's a certain point where, where things are worn away, where, where the goodness is, is taken, that you start to lose your grasp on, is good even real? Is there any purpose? And, and, and that's the perspective we have is, after we've stopped listening to God, after we've gone out from his presence, if there's good, um, how do we enjoy it? so long as that good is corrupted. And so what does that look like in this world? That's why we began last week with Genesis 4. How does this play out that the story of Adam and Eve have echoes in the story of Cain and Abel, the first human beings? What, what does it look like instead of taking hold of life that God can give you to live with good and evil and to grapple with it? Well, you have Abel, uh, who we talked about last week. His name is the word Hevel. <laughs> um, he, he's, he's the picture of the breath, the one who was good, but his life was fleeting. And in his young years, he was cut down, though he had done nothing wrong. We don't hear anything. He doesn't speak for himself in Genesis 4. His name is not described. Abel is the picture of vanity, of futility, of here's somebody who's good, and he's young, and he has all these things to do, and, and he's killed by Cain, whose name is the one who gets, the one who takes. And then we read Cain's genealogy because Abel doesn't have one. Cain's genealogy is the building of cities and the formation of culture, which is good, but the corruption is there because Cain's violence gets magnified by the end of his genealogy in the person of Lamech. You could read that in Genesis 4. And so there's these two pictures of Genesis 1, the spirit of God, his ruach, hovers over creation, and there's a story that ends in rest. And then Genesis 2 through 4 begins with God breathing his breath into humanity. In Genesis 4, the breath is exhaled. Abel, Hevel. We read a story that, that though uh, life was given by God, life is now taken by humanity. And so God breathes into humanity, and humanity breathes out. Uh, and that exhale is the exhale of weariness. 
It's, it's the life going out from us. And the, the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the, the teacher, sometimes he's called Koheleth just because that's the Hebrew word, is reflecting on Hevel, the weariness, the tiredness, the fact that after six days of work, we don't rest, but the work is never done, and I'm tired. And so uh, verses three to seven talk about toil. Now the themes of Genesis one and two are all here. Uh, verses three, verse three is toil, work. Uh, uh, verse four, generations. That's the whole book of genera- Genesis. You keep reading. Now these are the generations. These are the generations. That's verse four, the generations. Um, uh, uh, verse five, sun, light. That's the beginning. Let, let there be light. Uh, verse six, wind, spirit. Uh, you know, the idea that the, the spirit is hovering over creation. God breathes life. Uh, verse seven, the streams and the sea. All of this is what we see in Genesis one and two. And this is an ancient document, but it, but it reads like modern secular, uh, uh, the situation where we've studied it, we understand it technologically, we could explain it, but the transcendence is gone. Rather than looking at the, at the wind and the seas and being pulled into the greatness of it all, the greatness of it all only reminds us of how small we are, that, that the earth continues, but we come and go. The, seas, the, wa- the waters rush into the sea, but the seas never fall. And the earth, which keeps going rather than being an anchor for us, makes us feel weary because we don't keep going. We breathe and we strive and we toil uh, and then we die. And so verse 14 and 17, uh, what is the nature of this human striving? He says, I've seen everything in verse 14 that is done under the sun. And behold, it is vanity and a striving after wind. And that's life. We're we're trying to grasp for something meaningful and good. But he says, but my experience is that in all of our striving, all of our work, just when you think you put your hand on what will satisfy you, it doesn't satisfy you. And it's like trying to grasp wind. That is a wearying experience. And so here we are six months, more than six months into this pandemic. And the structures that we normally have are there, the things that give us delight and pleasure aren't there in the same way. What is it that marks this period of time? And that's where I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear some of you are hopeful, you're expectant, you're thankful, you're, you're holding on to what's good. You're not despairing, not all of us. But there's disenchantment, there's antsiness, uh, there's weariness, there's tiredness. Uh, when we think more broadly, what is the culture telling us? And, and, and I think two of the big themes we've been grappling with as an American society, at least, the issue of race. Um, what is the phrase that I think is going to be the legacy from this time period? Um, I think it's, I can't breathe. Uh, you know, going back to Eric Garner, but now through our situation, there's a sense in which the, the cultural phrase is, I can't breathe. Uh, what about COVID? How's that dominating the world? Why do we need to make sure that, that our hospitals are not overwhelmed? What, what is the last line of defense in terms of the various things? I think the picture of this season, that the, uh, the logo is the ventilator, right? Isn't that the biggest fear that if we don't manage this properly, the thing that could save our lives will be miserable, but the reality is by the time you get on the ventilator, if you can't breathe for yourself, how long can we do the breathing for you? And there's a sense in which we're living through a time period where where all of our striving, especially in this glorious city, New York, (laughs) 
that has given all of us excitement and energy. And now the things that normally keep us busy aren't there. And rather than the breath of life coming into us to inspire us, there's the expiring air, the, the breathing out where we're weary. It's not ruach. It's not the spirit of God that comes in to make things alive. It's, it's hevel. It's, it's the exhale, the, the breath that says all is fleeting. And so this is a time to reprioritize so we don't get overwhelmed. The, the things that we've hoped in, the things that have kept us satisfied may not be there. So, so what will our reprioritizing be? And that's where there's a spiritual opportunity. What are you striving after in life? What is it you're trying to take hold of? And what, at the end of the day, will you take hold of and be able to say, and now that I'm done, I can, I can rest in it? This is an opportunity for us to find that what we've been striving for, assuming will give us life, has largely been chasing after wind. And a time to take stock of, of what really will satisfy, what, what will lead us to end our day and be able to sleep content. And it's not so much of what's occupied the last few years of our lives. And this is a hard period. It's a wearying period. But it is a hopeful period that if God will still breathe into us, <laughs> then as we're, we're losing our last breath, we're not left to despair. Now, I want to move from grasping for life to struggling for productivity because the first thing I'm saying is we're grasping for life, but the reality is we're gasping for life. We want the breath of God in us, but we have heaven. We have the, the breath of humanity going out from us. The second thing that I want to talk about that causes weariness is our struggle for, for productivity. See, work, when we think of the wearying nature of work, what's wrong with work? Well, work is given in the Bible before there's sin, before there's a curse. Uh, productivity is good. Humanity is meant to follow the pattern of God about ordering and being wise and using our power and authority with goodness. Uh, work itself is not the problem. But now we're like Cain. <laughs> for us, work becomes a way of getting for ourselves at the expense of others. And, and, and now we live in this wearying pattern. And so uh, the word toil in verse three, um, work is good. Toil has a negative sense that it's work, but it's exhausting work. It's not productive work. It's not satisfying work. Because look, we could get through a hard project if at the end we'll be satisfied. But so much of what we're feeling is that, that we're toiling. Uh, there's a futility. We're, we're killing ourselves. And for what? What is the gain? And, and that's, the, that's the question in verse 3. What, what does man, what does humanity gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So the idea of gain, the idea of profit, is there any profit? Is there any gain after all that we occupy ourselves with? And, and, and the Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, says if you want to really look at the bigness of the world and the generations and how small we are in that, are we making a dent in anything? Every generation dreams of changing the world and then, and then the next corrupt regime comes in and the next struggle happens and the next disaster and it's wearisome. The earth is cursed. So the story of Cain and Abel uh, last week, we talked a little bit about Abel being, a, Abel being a keeper of the sheep. Cain is a, toil, uh, a tiller of the soil, a worker of the ground. And in, the, in that story, his, his offering to God wasn't satisfying. And so rather than, than doing something that would lead to satisfaction, he kills his brother. 
Um, the worker, there's an irony here that rather than offering a pleasing sacrifice, he treats his brother as a sacrifice. The one whose task is to, to work the ground pours the blood of his brother into the soil. And so God comes and says, your brother's, your, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Hevel, Abel is still speaking, even though he's been silenced by you. And your job was to take the ground and make it productive. And you've, through violence, filled it with the person you envied and resented. And so is that the way to work so that, that the ground produces? And what we're told is that, that then Cain is driven out to the land of wandering, that, that, that now work, uh, that's Genesis 3, by the sweat of your brow, you will earn your bread. Uh, work is now hard. And, and we make gains, we keep at it. There, there's productivity, but it's so hard and the productivity seems so fleeting that it leaves us weary. And so this is a time period where, where maybe for years you said, wouldn't it be great to work from home? <laughs> and now you have to work from home and you realize there's no separation between work and home. And I'm glad to not have to commute, but, but now uh, productivity has decreased. And so this week, uh, teachers who, who were given the hard task, if, if you're in the public school system, of being great in the classroom and great being online, and there was this model that teachers didn't think would work, but administrators thought would work, and now they're told, but no, this week, you will not teach in the classroom. And so, so how does that work in terms of our systems, the way we've organized life? Well, for working parents, You've banked on every school year for how many years were your kids able to go to school? And now you have to be productive at home, but you also have to oversee your kids' education. And so there's a, a, a disorderliness. This week, the New York Presbytery met. That's the, that's the region of uh, Presbyterian ministers in our area. And we met over Zoom. And one of the, the ministers is giving his report. And while he was giving his report, his wife comes by and puts a baby in his lap. She probably thought this was just another Zoom call that he wasn't speaking to, you know, 50 ministers from around the region. Um, and it was a funny moment, but, but, but that's a picture of this moment. It, it's charming. It's great. We have to lower our expectations. But how are you supposed to be productive when that happens? And so this week, the plan for child care, a good plan, uh, I could send my kids to school. So my next door neighbor in the apartment next door, she has classes to teach. She's faculty at a college. Her plan was that her young rambunctious son would be in school at the same time as her lectures. And this week, he's not. So what does she do when she doesn't want to be interrupted? She sends her son next door. Now, my kids are old enough that for six months, I've not had an interrupted meeting because I've been able to tell them, I'm going in the room, closing the door. This week, we made sure our neighbor's lecture did not get interrupted, but I was in the middle of a meeting, and for the first time in six months, the door opened up, and young, rambunctious Jack came in with some questions for me. <laughs> and so, so we were able to preserve productivity for my neighbor, but I experienced a little bit of futility as I needed to tell the person on Zoom that they needed to hold on because this five-year-old had an important question for me. <laughs> so there's lots of fun things happening if... At the end of the day, your investors will be patient with you if your boss will allow your quarterly report to be a little bit late. 
except that if you have the same expectations of productivity and you're in this period where, where now the standards are similar, but, but our order has become chaotic, um, there's something inherently tiring about the period we're in. When I think about um, the area that I've seen, or one of the areas I've seen the most wearying at Emmanuel, you know, a typical Emmanuel person, not everybody, but, but people tend to be career focused. And even people who aren't career focused are focused on, on some livelihood. People are invested in their own skills and habits, and some people are able to get paid for it. Some people are not. Um, but given, given uh, the, 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 di- the demographic of our church, um, having children has been an often component. So, so since shelter in place, I did a quick, I did, off the top of my head, a tip, quick count this morning. I think five babies have been born, or at least five that I can come up with. I might have missed a, a, a couple. At least five have been born in the last, since, since shelter in place. And so that's the nature of, of, of uh, our church. That, that's an experience. Isn't it wonderful to have children? Aren't they cute? Isn't it something we desire? And yet, what is the experience? It's, it's the unraveling of Genesis 1, where, where I used to know the difference between night and day. Um, but now, if the child who's orderly enough to, to want to eat every three hours, <laughs> but if those three hours are midnight, three, and six, I could do that for a day, I could do that for two days, but, but how long can I go not sleeping through the night? And what's interesting is the task of, of taking care of a newborn is pretty simple. You have to keep the baby clean and you have to feed the kid. And yeah, there are other surprises that could come up medically, but for the most part, there's a simplicity to it. It's not hard, but it winds up wearying. What happens three months into not having sleep, not having productivity? Um, there's this disorientation that really some people psychologically, uh, it's overwhelming. Others are able to, to stay hopeful, but there's a weariness. And then somewhere in the four to six months, there's hope. Now the child is sitting up, holding his head. Um, things are a little bit different. But then what is the nature of life six months to one year? Um, if you're used to productivity and accomplishing tasks, um, that doesn't happen a lot. I remember I have three kids and sitting there with, with a, a four-ounce jar of baby food, and you have to feed the child who's grabbing for the spoon. And they, you, you, I'd like the child to, to feed himself, uh, but, but you can't. And then you look at the end of the feeding, and the jar says four ounces. And you estimate it looks like there's about an ounce of food on his head and on his, his outfit, and maybe another ounce in the tray. There seems to be another ounce on the floor, and you wonder, did I just feed my kid? <laughs> Because all I need to do is feed him and keep him clean. And I, and I don't know. The jar is empty, but I, I don't know how much the child has actually eaten. So let me go wash the child. And so you clean the baby up, and then you pick him up, and then you're, you're, you're glad because that task is done, and the child spits up on the outfit that you just cleaned. And so you take the outfit off, and you put on a new outfit, and then you hear that the diaper now needs to be changed. And all of this, it's not hard. You just need to feed. You need to clean. But you start to say eight months in, I'm tired. And what is my, my life is about laundry. That's it. That, that's what I do. It, it never ends. The, the water goes into the sea, but the, the sea is never full. I'm always cleaning. And then if you have my neurosis, I, I, I would sit there with my baby and think, I know a diaper change is needed now, but, but how long can I go before I could see if, if, if maybe I could put off the change and then occasionally there's victory and occasionally there's the change. And the second you change, boom, now I need to change again. Uh, Hevel, it's, it's, it's meaningless. 
Um, one of the interesting things at Emmanuel, uh, people don't complain about the task of parenting. People know what they're signing up for. But when you have somebody who's been a consultant and is used to working an 80-hour week and killing themselves because they know in two months I will be done with this project, and then they see the pattern after a year, it's like, actually, I'm always done with the project, but there's a new project. But when I make partner, then somebody else could do some of the tedious work. Things are moving. But now, not only am I doing my consulting work, but, but where my heart is, is I've become somebody who does laundry, who, who's feeding somebody who makes a mess. And, and one of the common themes at Emmanuel that I've seen over the years, very high reporting of people assuming they are the worst parents in the world. Highly competent people. I, I've, I've specialized training to accomplish these things in the world. But in this realm here, I see all these other people doing a great job, but me, I'm the worst. And it's hard to argue because what, what do I know about whether or not somebody's a good parent? But I know that it's quite common for people who have been used to being able to move things forward and order and accomplish things to feel in that period, this wonderful period of the Lord's provision and kindness and cuteness. Everything about this is great except me. <laughs> because I'm overwhelmed and I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm a miserable parent. And I've tracked a number of these people who years later, I'm like, you must've been a great parent because look how great your kids are. But I remember sitting with you five years ago where you were thinking, but it's unique to me. I'm the only one. What is it that leads the weariness? Is it, is it the task of feeding and changing? It's that it never ends. It's, it's here we are, it's another diaper. It's, it's another load of laundry and that's tiring. And as a society, we're, we're in that period. When will we get back to being able to go to a show? Um, we don't know. We don't know. And it's the open-ended nature that right now we're struggling for productivity. And, and it seems wearying because we're striving after wind. It's, it's the same thing every day. What are we accomplishing? Are things six months later um, better than they were six months ago in some ways? But the Board of Ed each week is telling us, uh, the plan that we announced last week, we've just altered. <laughs> and now we're adapting our lives to that. And we're getting tired. In verse 15, there's a little proverb for us. And this is part of the wisdom tradition. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. And th these are two of the themes we're going to see going. What's crooked cannot be made straight. What power do you have in your humanity for all of this work, for, for all of your skill? Um, there are things that are wrong that we want to fix and straighten out. But but the generations come and go and the world is still crooked. We have wisdom to understand, but we, we don't have the power and that's wearying. Uh, and then what is lacking cannot be counted. So, so here he gives himself to wisdom and he, he's attaining wisdom. He's learning. And, and the fool, he, you know, this is interesting. Ecclesiastes doesn't commend foolishness, even though he wonders what gain there is in wisdom. Well, the fool strives from one thing to the next and doesn't realize that all of their troubles are coming because they're not learning their lessons. They keep making the same mess over and over. So the wise gain understanding of how things work. So you don't make the same mistakes over. But here's the thing about wisdom. You start to learn how things work. And now you don't hate everybody else and blame everybody else because they're all idiots. You realize, no, now that I know the complexity of things, I'm starting to know what I know but I'm starting to understand that there's a lot I don't know. And that's not a comfortable place for most human beings. What, 
what is lacking cannot be counted. So, so I've studied the world. I've, I've given myself to figuring everything out and I've learned so much. But the more I'm learning, the more I'm realizing I, 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 I don't yet know these other things. And so I'm going to give myself to that task and, and it never ends. And so productivity, <laughs> it seems fleeting. It seems like we're striving after wind. So here's, here's the third and the last thing. What is it that causes weariness for us? It's, it's not just that we're trying to grasp for life that we can't take hold of. And it's not just that we're trying to be productive, but we're not really seeing sufficient gain. But it's that we're longing for something new. Here's the third thing. Um, in the tiredness, the weariness, we, we want to finish something and be satisfied in it. And we're never done. And we're never satisfied. And, and the work is always there and it's wearying. And the longing of Koheleth, the, the preacher, the teacher, verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Because that would mean that there's gain for all of our toil. If, if we do something that makes a difference, the hope is that, that there would be something new. <laughs> and this is where Ecclesiastes fitting in the story of scripture that begins in the book of Genesis chimes in in the middle of human history to say the generations are going and the earth that God has made is consistent and, and the wisdom and the order is there and, and I'm learning and I'm grasping, but, but the generations come and go and we still struggle. Uh, will we ever have a ruler who is just? Will we ever have a, a, uh, will we be able to solve poverty as much as we can understand it? Can we bring a change to things? Is there anything new? And that's his hope. And you read the prophets, you read a prophet like Jeremiah that says, humanity has not been like Abel who offered themselves with wisdom to God's honor, but we've been like Cain. When we haven't been good enough, we made things worse. And, and so we've broken the covenant and we've gone out from God's prom, uh, his, his uh, presence and the Ruach, the spirit is not breathing into us, but the Hevel, the, the expired breath is coming out of us. Is there anything new? And the prophet Jeremiah, among others, said, well, one day God will, will make a new covenant. And then Jesus comes, and it marks an epic in history where finally something new happens. Uh, the new covenant signed, in, uh, the, the sign being the breaking of bread and the, the holding up of the cup. Jesus does come to do something new. So, so I began this sermon, and we're beginning this series in, in the book of Genesis, the first book. I want to remind us of where the redemptive story goes in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Um, Ecclesiastes is trying to make sense of life under the sun, the world as we know it that we could observe, that we can see, that we can experience, and, and, and I can't control, and I can't figure everything out. The book of Revelation opens up with a doorway into heaven, Revelation 4. Uh, John is going to be shown something that we can't see, that we can't figure out about the mystery of God and his plan and his ways, about a reality that's here but not observed. And so he enters into this vision in Revelation 4, and in Revelation 5, there's a scroll, and it's sealed. And there's a question, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? See, there's all this that we can know, but there's all this that we can't know. What is God doing in this? Is this going anywhere? And there's a scroll that can't be opened, and and John, who narrates his, his experience of this vision, says he wept. Why did he weep? Is, is he weeping at the sorry state of humanity that nobody is worthy? Is he weeping because he's longing to know something of God's plan and purpose that's sealed up? Uh, he's overwhelmed. Uh, he's weary, heavily. Uh, what do you do? 
And then Revelation 5 announces, wait, there is one, there's a king, there's a ruler, there's somebody who's worthy to open. But the interesting thing that the one who's a king before the nations appears before his people in this vision as a lamb. And in Revelation 5, uh, there's a song when we find that there's one worthy. See, there, there's a transcendence. See, the bigness of the world that we want to be pulled into, Kohelet uh, feels like the bigness of the world I'm shrinking back from and I'm feeling like I'm, I'm losing everything. John is drawn into the worship where everyone says, worthy are you to Jesus, the lamb, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God. The, the thing that's new in the redemptive story is not that God raises up the ultimate king, the ruler that looks like the king of all nations, but that God raises up a king who looks like a lamb to his own people, uh, who hears the cry of the blood of Abel, uh, the one who is silent, whose blood fills the ground, and he comes and he's slain, but his blood ransoms a people. The story is redemptive. The, the people that have gone and wandered are brought back. What's new? Now take John, who has this heavenly vision. So in the same way in Genesis 3, this Edenic vision of Adam and Eve in a garden, what, what is that reality? Well, the reality is Genesis 4. It plays out in history of human beings killing one another. This reality that John sees in the book of Revelation that ends with, with the tree of life in the city. And the, the, the language, behold, I am making all things new. That's how the Bible ends, with God saying, you've given the task for work, but it's a task you're not accomplishing. Behold, I am making all things new. In that heavenly vision, what does this look like in reality? Well, you read John's gospel. So, so assuming it's the same John that wrote John's gospel in the book of Revelation, um, he has these creation themes as John begins, in the beginning was the word. And so, uh, so the recreation story is happening. And, and where does it lead us? It leads us to meeting Jesus, who then uh, identifies not with the rulers and their power, but with the, the sheep in their weakness and vulnerability. And he's crucified. And in John 19, the way that John tells the story of his last words, John 19.30, when Jesus had received some sour wine, so he said, I thirst. There's a weariness. He's been on the cross. He's hanging in the heat of the sun. When Jesus had received some sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And this is the, the recreative story that, that Jesus, the, the word of life, the one who was with God in the beginning, the, the Ruach, who is over the created order and, and breathed in his goodness and power to make all things, he comes and, and his life ends with, with the kind of experience we read about in Ecclesiastes. There's bitterness, there's sour wine. The work that he finishes is to do the will of the Father, but he says it's finished. And then he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. Uh, he exhales. Uh, Hevel, the last breath that goes out from him. Um, Jesus comes and does this so that by his blood, he would ransom a people for himself. So what happens? What's new in this story? What's new is the resurrection. Death is not new to humanity. Jesus's death on behalf of others, that's new. But the new life-giving power is in the resurrection. So Jesus, who gives up his spirit, saying he's finished this exhausting work, appears to his disciples in John 20, verses 21 to 22. 
He appears to his disciples and he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's the shifting point of history. Is there anything new? Is there anybody worthy? And God says, behold, I am making all things new. Because he comes and he experiences the bitterness. And he calls out at the exhausting finishing of this awful work. And he gives up his spirit. And then he comes and announces peace. Uh, There is something that will satisfy you. Um, Your work as the Father sent me. Now I'm sending you. I'm giving you a new task, a new work. Um, And when he said this, he breathes on them. And and, and the cry of Ecclesiastes, Hevel, the, the expiring breath that goes out, uh, he breathes ruach, he breathes pneuma, the Greek word. He breathes the Holy Spirit into us to give us life. And so if you want to read about the resurrection, you could read 1 Corinthians 15. Lots of details about the resurrection. The, the chapter, the long chapter about this new thing that God has done in giving life ends with this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And see, what a different way of being in the world. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. Is there any profit from this toil? And humanity is striving after wind. We're trying to grasp life. Life is never earned or achieved or seized by us. But this is one of the messages of Ecclesiastes. It's always given by God. Always. Any hint of hope in Ecclesiastes is about what God gives. And what we're told, this new thing, is God has given the Spirit back to us. He breathes life into us. He has redeemed us. And therefore, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your life is not futile. Even if for periods between the resurrection and the renewal of all things, if you feel a monotony, if you don't see productivity, we're told, is your work, is your labor in the Lord? Well, you don't have to stay stuck in the narrative of Genesis 2 to 4. You're invited back to life with God because he gives you life. And now do your work and then draw a line and finish with it and remember God and rest in him. Um, Ecclesiastes presents uh, these words as coming from the king. And of course, we're supposed to to think of Solomon. That's verse 1. That's verse 12. Uh, Who is this great wise figure in Israel's history? And Solomon was wise, but we find that Solomon was not perfect. You could read that for all of his wisdom that was given to him, um, he was not perfect and he made mistakes. And at the end of of his uh, reign, we see that some of what he did wrong comes back to haunt the people of Israel. So he has a son named Rehoboam. And people come to his son and they say, your father forced us to work. All of this great building that happened, is it wonderful? Well, it was wearisome for us. And so your father put a yoke upon us. And so we would like you to give us rest. And he says, go away, and I'm going to think about this. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, consults the older and the wiser. And they say, these people are tired. Be gentle with them, and they will always be loyal to you. That's the wisdom tradition. And then if you read 1 Kings 12, uh, Rehoboam has some friends who are like Cain. (laughs) They say, actually, this is the time to assert your power. This is the time to show them who's in charge. 
And so he says to them, come to me. I've now thought about this. And if you thought my father's yoke was heavy, I'm going to put a heavier yoke upon you. And that divides the kingdom. This is what human rulership does. We, we don't give rest to our people, but we come to assert our control and our power. And, and we're, we're building societies like Cain. What's new in this world? What's new in this world is somebody who, who doesn't say, come to me. And if you thought my father's yoke was heavy, mine is going to be heavier. What's new is that the one who has the power to give life comes and says, now come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Life and rest are not seized. They're given to you. Jesus says, you can learn from observing this world, but if you learn from me, and if you join yourself with me, you'll find that my father's yoke is not overwhelming. That's new. That's different. And what we're told is if you are weary, if this world is burning you out, if there is no profit for all of your work, if you can't make sense of things, the God who gives life invites you. He has sent Jesus Christ to bear that burden, to suffer and join you in your dying so that you would join him in his living. And Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. So are you weary? Is this world full of weariness? What you need is Jesus. And so in this sustained period where the things we've counted on to sustain us, to give us life, to give us energy, we can't count on them. We can't grasp them. There's a disordering of things. What do we do? We need to rest on those practices. What does it mean to know that I don't earn my salvation? To realize I can't build a life for myself, that I can't fix the world, but not in a hopeless way, in a way that says, but if I receive the breath of life from God, I have breath for today and my toil is not in vain. How do you rest in that? We're not good at that, but that's the invitation of God. Come and rest in me. It's not, it's not that you have no work to do, but, but your work is not futile. And so during this season, I want to encourage you to recognize this world is going to teach us that it's wearisome. There's no gain, but God will speak a new reality and breathe new life into you to say, whoever you are, if you're in Christ, your work is not in vain. And so whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Let's practice in this season resting in Christ, and he will sustain us. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we come to you as a hopeful community. We are grateful for your kindness. These things are true. The gospel is true. But if we're honest, these words that we pasted in the beginning are also true, that, that we're antsy, we're dissatisfied, we're weary, we're tired, we're frustrated. All of these things are also true at the same time. And Lord, some of us are, are losing a grasp on the goodness. The goodness is, is uh, like vapor. It's ephemeral. And Lord, we need something to hold on to. And so Lord, remind us that we will never make a life for ourselves or earn your favor or justify our existence. But if we look to you, you will give us your spirit. You will breathe life into us and our souls will find rest at the end of our days. Lord, some of us need this now. So sustain us, grant us rest 
bring your peace into us and breathe your life into us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.